thank you, Brian. If you guys know the Enneagram, have you figured out that Ted Lasso sees the world through the Type 7 lens? Oh, my goodness. That's not how I wanted to start, sorry. <laughs> uh, hi. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. To you, too, Brian and Wesley and all of you and Kevin. Um, yeah, why don't we pray again? So again, you guys are probably used to me saying things like this, but uh, let's pause. First things first, let's just get present. The image I like to remind myself of and of you is who gets to run into the throne room of any king and just offer up your desires, your wishes and then say deuces and run out. <laughs> In the last contemplative service that I did with you guys, we talked about being open and receptive, getting our minds into our hearts. And so Creator God, maker of the universe, author of love, author of life. The very breath we breathe. Our intention is to be open to you and to your spirit. Our intention is the Christ. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that us knucklehead humans were inspired enough by your creation and your power that we were willing to write stuff down. May our understanding of you and our openness to you increase as a result of interacting with these stories. God, my very selfish prayer for me today and for my friends here is that we would remain open especially with this text that so many of us have heard before. The temptation is just that, to recognize that we've heard it before. Spirit of God, would you breathe something new into us today as we hear these words again? Right on. Amen. So, man, we are getting towards the end of Mark. Someone say, finally, please. <laughs> Thank you for not doing that when I told you to. That would be way too much power. <laughs> um, yeah, but we're getting towards the end of Mark. We've been on this journey for a while. Oh, by the way, I'm Wayne. Uh, I guess I have a beard. And uh, I'm one of the uh, teaching uh, members here on the teaching team, also one of your pastors. And I love you whether or not you even know it. Um, yeah, so we have been in Mark for a long time, and we are getting um, to the end. Um, in particular for me, this, this section that we have today, um, when we have our teaching team meetings and we throw out the emails with like the list of like, Okay, here's the next week, here's the, here's the scripture section, right? Here's this, here's this. Thank you, Catherine, for having such good organizational skills and a calendar. Um, but when I saw that one, I jumped. Uh, I jumped at, at the, the section today. Um, and then, which you'll see shortly, I realized... <laughs> um, well, actually, let me back up. Does that ever bother you? 
Does it ever bug you at all when you read uh, the text, when you read scripture? Um, sometimes the, the chapters, the chapter headings, the verses, it, it, you ever notice that it gets in the way of the flow? Um, I mean, this, this is, a, this is a, an, an oral story that was passed down to us. And again, as you've heard from up here, chapters, verses, headings, I mean, that didn't even come in until maybe 14th, 15th century. Um, it's really nice for organization and for um, breaking, you know, different Sundays down. Um, but today's, um, it stops in a really weird spot. We're in the 15th chapter of Mark. Um, I have verses 1 through 20 today. Um, but verse 20 comes at a really, it just stops at a weird spot. Um, so in full disclosure, um, next week, Brian White has verses 20 and on. But we've already talked multiple times, and we're going to double dip a little bit today. So I've already talked to Brian, so I'm not stepping on his toes, or I am, and he just smiled and said it was okay. <laughs> so with that being said, uh, if we could throw uh, the first, just jump right into Mark. There we are. All right, friends, I'll read this to you. Very, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews, to ask Pilate? You've said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner from the people, I'm sorry, whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and they asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do? Sorry, what shall I do then with the one that you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd... Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. They began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and they spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him, and when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him. They then led, then they led him, then they led to, my goodness, why can't I say that? Then they led him out to crucify him. Those are all really hard words. <laughs> like, I don't know if you guys have studied the SAT as of late, but then they, I mean, <laughs> Then they led him out to crucify him. Wasn't supposed to be a joke at the end, sorry. <laughs> All right. Um, this is a text many of us are familiar with. Um, you've seen probably horrific reenactment, reenactments of this, some really cheesy, some probably pretty good. But again, I hope that you can um, suspend judgment Listen a little open-handed, bless you. Listen a little bit uh, open-handedly today, meaning like we're not, we don't, we already know what we know. Um, there might be some more for us to uncover here. So with that being said, uh, we need to jump into the world of academia for a quick second. I'm so sorry. Um, but we need to be reminded of um, some Jewish uh, eschatological ideas. That's an SAT word, huh? <laughs> Eschatological. <laughs> so eschatology is the study of the end. It's the study of end times. Uh, every 
world, like religious worldview, uh, any supernatural worldview that believes that things, you know, were created outside of the natural world, um, has some form of eschatology, meaning uh, that they know or they uh, presuppose how things will go down, how the end looks. It's kind of in our nature, isn't it? Jewish eschatology, I do have that. So we've unpacked this before as a community. I recognize when we say things like that from up here that there are some of you who are here like, I wasn't here before. So please forgive us. Um, Let me try to unpack that really quick. Um, This phrase is used a lot. Paul, in particular in the New Testament, uses this phrase about the age to come. uh, And simply, uh, quickly put, (laughs) hopefully simply put, uh, for the Jew, there are two different ages that that we're kind of living in. And ever since um, what we, uh, probably a lot of us came up um, calling the fall, um, just ever since uh, Genesis 3, uh, when when the garden was no longer accessible, we have been living, according to the Jewish eschatology, we have been living in this current age. There are things that we should assume about this current age. And this is kind of how, again, the the Jews um, see the world. So this current age is marked by things like death. A lot of Ds, by the way, coming up. Uh, Death, destruction, decay, division. Um, It is war. It seems to be that evil is winning. Um, Maybe even, I mean, think about from a Jewish perspective and and constantly being conquered. Maybe maybe even, uh, you know, the, the death and destruction of all of us. Um, that, that this is just going to happen. And so their hope was in this figure, this Messiah figure, the Christ, that would come and usher in the age to come. And that is marked by, um, I don't want to make it so simply like this current age evil wins and the age to come good wins, because it actually moves beyond just good and evil, which is something we're going to have to unpack later. <laughs> Maybe not all today in 25 minutes. Um, But the age to come would be living in shalom, a right relationship with God, flourishing, abundant, not lacking anything. But it doesn't just stop with God. There are four aspects of shalom. It is a right relationship with God. It is a right relationship with one another. It is a correct and flourishing and abundant relationship with the natural created order of things. I love to remind us of this. The text tells us that the earth should actually be better because we're on it. Ugh. Right? Yeah. Ugh. And lastly, that we would, have, we would have shalom, peace with ourselves. Right? This is the age to come. And uh, death does not win in the age to come because um, death is actually not the final conclusion, if you will. Why is that important? Because the text that we're looking at right now and Mark's goal of answering this question of who is this man and the way that he is telling the story, he is wanting us to participate and listen and to come to our own conclusions. But the way he's going to tell the story, um, at least the way that I see it from a narrative perspective, perspective, this is this is the pinnacle. This is the pinnacle of what started way back in the garden. Can we actually go to that slide, please? Cool. Don't know if you all have been exposed to Howard Yoder or potentially another one of his um, colleagues, uh, Stanley Hauerwas. These are some pretty um, radical Christ followers. Um, I love this quote. To me, this quote is uh, exactly what's going down in this section of Scripture, and it gets us, again, why we have to go back to the garden. I'll show it to you. But here we go. The cross is not a detour or a hurdle on the way to the kingdom, nor is it even the way to the kingdom. It is the kingdom come. I had this originally at the very end as a conclusion, but man, I want us to have that at the forefront of our minds as we're looking uh, at what Mark is so beautifully doing uh, in the way that he's crafting his narrative. To do so, I need to get us back to the garden. So if we can go to my little tree picture there, right? Cool. I need you guys to remember the garden poem. 
those first few chapters in Genesis. Before life and humanity, which is what Adam and Eve means, before life and humanity knew anything about good or evil. Before eating the fruit, they were living in shalom, a flourishing and abundant existence in union with God, nature, one another, and with themselves. You guys know uh, we like the diamond around here, and in particular, I love bringing up the diamond and all the different sides. Recently, because of the stuff that I'm consuming, the books that I'm reading, the people I'm listening to, um, I've had a little shift. And so I would like to share a little shift with you guys, if that's okay. This is my diamond-angled hypothesis, if you will. It appears that life and humanity lived non-dualistically, non-judgmentally, prior to obtaining the knowledge of good and evil, and that this was God's intention. Strange that humanity would seize the opportunity to, to define good and evil for themselves. Sit with that for a second. It appears in the poem that the intention of the divine is that we would live in such a way that we would not be constantly judging what's good, what's bad, what's in, what's out. Again, strange, strange that humanity would seize the opportunity to leave that behind and to define good and evil for themselves. Who told you that you were naked? Did that ever, like, when maybe you first heard that, read that, maybe you were younger, you think about the um, omnipotence, right? The omniscience of God. And it seems like such a dumb question. <laughs> Who told you you were naked? Who told you it was bad? Where'd you get this definition? I can imagine God's heart breaking. In that story, that opening story, the beginning of that narrative, which man, it's so beautifully threaded all throughout 66 books of the Bible, but it's in that beginning that our unity with the divine was lost. I don't have this in my notes, but a, a quick side note here. Um, I grew up in a faith tradition that really seemed to emphasize the beginning of the story at Genesis 3, at the, the fall. Some of us here love story. Some of us here love telling stories and good stories, right? And the way you start a story, it, not only is it compelling, but it, it dictates the rest of the story, the trajectory of the story, the, the motive of the participants in the story. I think it might have been Roar. I wish it was somebody else just because I mentioned him so much. <laughs> but he's not the first to say it. But guys, we focus, so many of us, and I'll, I'll confess to you, our story starts with the original sin. Three chapters before that is the original blessing. That brings up emotion in me. Why start our story at such a deficit? <laughs> start our story with the intention of God. And watch how that story then comes to fruition. All right, let me unpause those notes. Sorry. <laughs> so our union with the divine was lost. Humans' participation in the dance is cut short due to our desire to label things good and evil. The ability to define good and evil, dualistic thinking, for themselves now becomes the source of all the division in the world and ultimately all the fighting. 
my God is good. Your God is evil. I have divine justification to kick your ass, to wipe you off the face of the earth. Conversely, those people that we're saying are evil, they think we're evil, and their God is the good God, and our God is evil. We both have righteous justification to beat the crap out of each other. Thank you for earlier for reminding us that these are our siblings that we're talking about. <laughs> this leads to the way of empire. And in the narrative, if you follow the, the narrative arc in Scripture, the authors, they use very specific language. And this idea of moving further away from this wholeness, from shalom, from, from this relationship with God and each other, the way things ought to be, the authors pick up on it and they use the phrase going further east of Eden, moving away from Eden. It's not long after in that story we get the Tower of Babel. <laughs> we get the story of empire, right? The story of empire versus empire. We could do, we, when we define these things, we, you guys are with me, right? Hopefully no one, like, you just see it. <laughs> If not, stay after. We'll talk more if you need help. It is the Christ that saves us from black and white thinking. It is the Christ that saves us from us and them mentality. This is most notable in his command to love our enemies since enemy is a construct and a byproduct of judging, I'm sorry, a byproduct of a judging and dualistic mind. Or how about when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. It takes a non-judging mind to come to such a conclusion. Because there's no way there's no way that you can just do that with your own will. Paul tried it. That's like half of Paul's like words, isn't it? I've tried, I've tried, I've tried. I've, I've followed the law. I, I, I know I'm not supposed to judge. Can't happen until there's a shift. It can't happen until there's a shift. The Old Testament prophets knew that there was a day coming that we would get new hearts, hearts that could actually love God and love our neighbor. I'm here up front telling you, I believe that the Christ is that X factor in getting out of the polaric, dualistic way of thinking. Come on. Love you guys. Let's get back to the text. Uh, no, next slide. That's what I meant. Sorry. <laughs> so, Back to the text. We have Jesus Christ, the light of the world, that through which all things are created, John tells us, who has been revealing the way back to God throughout his entire ministry. Here he is early in the morning after a night of festivities that involved the entire city. I had bad punctuation there. <laughs> Here he is early in the morning after a night of festivities that involved the entire city. I want to pause there for a second. Catherine did such a fantastic job last week of showing us what went down, giving us the locations of how things went down. I want to remind you of a couple things and point out a couple things here. This is the day after Passover. People are in food comas. People have been drinking wine all day long. You guys know what happens when you day drink, you barbecuers, right? We get tired. <laughs> Earlier before that, we actually even see Jesus like, like asking his disciples, please don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep, don't fall asleep. And just, again, remember, like, this is after partying. This is after eating and drinking. And it's, it's not just that they were, you, you see what I'm saying? Let's not just dismiss it like, oh, they're just punks. Like, no, the entire, entire Jerusalem is, is at this right? Catherine showed this, that to us, even when they, they pulled Jesus to do this mock, kind of mockery of a trial, 
the location of the trial, the kind of people that would be there, the time of day. And now you have the next morning. It's early in the morning. Most of Jerusalem is, I'm not going to say asleep, but it is, it is dull, if you will. And in the early morning, while everybody is still sleeping, he is now standing before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, having been bound and dragged there by all, all, by the way, all the Jewish power players. Hopefully we've unpacked that enough for you to know, like, it's pretty rare that they're all going to come together and agree on something. Because normally, they like their little bit of power and they're going to fight with each other. It's, it's like dumb gang stuff, right? They're just going to keep playing that stupid power game. But they all come together, do this, like, uh, in the middle of the night, they have their trial at a location that's not accessible to everybody. And now they've actually, because Jesus has already been uh, arrested at this point, right? He's, he's been on trial. Now he's going to go and go before the governor. Now, this is important to me that I throw this out to you. Nope, I'm not going to bring that up yet. Sorry. <laughs> um, the gospel writer, Mark, has been weaving a fantastic narrative account involving the listener to answer for themselves, us, right? Who is this man? It's actually the title of our series, right? Who is this man? Along the way throughout Mark, we've seen that the disciples often don't see it. Uh, The religious elite totally don't know how to answer the question. In fact, in the first few chapters, it's mostly the demons who know who Jesus is, right? It's like the evil ones. Uh, And sometimes the crowds, They, they they get a glimpse, right? So this entire time, Mark has been weaving a story for us to answer, who is this man? Here we get to see the definitions of good and evil colliding. This is why I go back to the garden, that this desire to define good and evil for ourselves, it's on trial right in front of us in this story here, right? And Mark is really, really, like he's not pulling punches. I was talking with Brian White earlier this morning, and we were kind of noticing that there's this Mark sandwich that we talk about all throughout, like the style that Mark writes, here, we don't think it's a sandwich as much as it is the punch, right? Like it is, he's like, boom, if you haven't seen it yet, here you go, right? So on that, (laughs) um, sorry, here we get to see the definition of good and evil colliding, and it is on an epic scale, the way and the, the showdown between empire and kingdom. This current age and the age to come that the Jew is waiting for. A recalibrating of our definitions and an invitation into seeing the world and participating in it with the lens of the Christ, the lens of shalom, a non-judging, non-polarizing way of being. For the first century listener, the juxtaposition of Jesus' way to the cross with that of Caesar's coronation process would have been obvious. Mark, more than any other of the gospel writers, uses the most poignant language to contrast Jesus with the powers of his day, the Jewish powers and the Roman powers. As we go through each step of the process here in just a second, please notice the powerful and satirical method that Mark uses to paint what he sees as the true inauguration of Jesus, the suffering and loving triumphator or the anti-triumphanter. First, Pilate is very impressed with Jesus. That always caught me, just that little section there, right? Like there's not a whole lot going on. He's saying all these things. He's watching the crowd, and Pilate, you know, he's seen this before, right? He's seen these power plays before, and he's impressed. The first thing that came to my mind, honestly, just game recognizes game, right? Like, Pontius Pilate has power. He has power and authority here in the empire. He has power uh, the the way that we define it here. And he's watching something that Jesus is doing. And I believe, I really do believe this is why Mark is including it. But meh, who knows? But I do believe that Mark is including it because there is a recognition. For Jesus to stand there and not say a word, you're the king of the Jews. I mean, okay, if you say so. Right? If that's the label you want to give me, okay. <laughs> it, it reminds me of the kind of innocent way 
that the divine asks Adam and Eve in the garden, who told you you were naked? Right? Jesus just exemplifying that character again. So, it appears to me that Pilate senses the true power that Jesus is wielding. This interesting moment is cut short as Pilate then turns to the people gathered there to inquire if he should release Jesus, knowing that the Jewish leaders were selfish in their desire to have Jesus arrested and crucified. He saw the game they were playing. So then he throws this out to the crowds. And this is where I got I to gotta say something to you all really quick. I have heard from where you are sitting, maybe not necessarily here at Liminal, but from the pews, from the classroom when I studied this stuff, and I probably even perpetuated when I was standing up here or in front of the classroom. But you may have heard how finicky the crowds are that it wasn't but a day or two earlier that the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, right? They're stoked. Here is, here is our Savior, right? The Messiah is here. And now you have this crowd yelling, crucify him, this and that. I would like to, um, again, just offer a little angle to y'all because I don't think the crowd um, gets a fair rap there. So just a really quick thing. Sociologically, uh, from a anthropological perspective, uh, the crowds that were meeting Jesus at the gates of Jerusalem were most likely commoners. Um, even if you looked at what they were participating in, I wasn't even going to say this, but like putting the palm fronds down and this and that, that that's alluding back to the Maccabean War. Um, these, are, these are people who have been um, under the boot of Rome and are, are wanting you know, to get out of it. I don't think it's the same crowd <laughs> who had access uh, to the trial the night before at Caiaphas's place, most of us aren't getting in there, let's be honest. And then the next morning, to be actually in the court of Pontius Pilate and with all the Jewish leaders. So when it says crowd, I, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say this isn't the same crowd. Do with it what you will. <laughs> So, let's get to this. So the first option, this first juxtaposition that uh, I think Mark is going to offer us is with Barabbas. So Barabbas is charged with treason against Rome. Ironically, or maybe not, <laughs> his name means son of the father, which, happy Father's Day. There's my Father's Day connection. <laughs> Uh, Jesus, who, interestingly, um, in some places, this, this might be a little of a stretch, but in some places, Jesus is referred to as Yeshua Baraba, right? Barabbas means son of the father. Jesus, right? On this end of the story, right, we, we kind of assume that he's son of, yeah. Jesus is charged with treason against Rome, Barabbas is charged with treason against Rome. Here we have the opportunity for the crowds to choose between good and evil. This reminds me of the garden again. This reminds me of the continuation of that narrative. If we can go to the next slide, please. For the sake of time, I'm going to try to do this pretty quick. Uh, normally, there would be double the amount of slides so that we could spend time with each one, but let's just compare and contrast these a little bit. So, um, why we're doing this? I think we all know that Jesus was mocked, like we saw that in the text. We've heard it a lot. We, we know they mocked him as king of the Jews. Maybe some of us don't know how a first century um, listener would, would make the connections. So, Caesar's coronation all throughout Rome we collectively, if this is first century, we know this. And so the listener, when they're hearing Mark's gospel, this is, this is being juxtaposed on the spot. Does that make sense? Are we up there? Okay, so Caesar's coronation and procession along with Jesus'. So the first one, we have the Praetorian Guard. 6,000 soldiers gathered in the Praetorium 
The would-be Caesar was brought into the middle of the gathering. Obviously, this is in Rome. Here in uh, Jerusalem, we have Jesus. Jesus was brought to the praetorium in Jerusalem, and the whole company of soldiers, around 200, so not as not 6,000, right? And these 200 probably, like if we're being honest, they probably would love to be a part of the 6,000, but they're way off in Jerusalem. So there's probably some angst behind some of the crap that they're doing, right? We can probably identify with that. Uh, can we go to the second one? Soldiers brought, a Je- sorry, soldiers brought Jesus a wreath of thorns, a scepter, an old stick, and a purple robe, mocking what would go down with Caesar, where the guards went to the temple of Jupiter Capitolinus, got a purple robe, and placed it on the candidate. The candidate was also given an olive leaf wreath made of gold and a scepter. Bless you. And a scepter, which symbolizes the authority of Rome. Let's go to the next slide. Then in Rome, Caesar was loudly acclaimed as the triumphant by the praetorian guard. Here we have Jesus sarcastically being acclaimed, mocked, and being paid homage to as the king. Can we go to the next slide, please? And this is where uh, I start crossing over a little bit into Brian's section with some of his, some of the, the topics there. For Caesar's coronation, and again, the, the first century listener would know this, and I thought this was so profound. A procession began through the streets of Rome, led by the soldiers. In the middle was Caesar. Walking directly behind Caesar was a sacrificial bull whose death and blood would mark Caesar's entrance into the divine pantheon. Walking next to the bull would be a slave who carried an axe to kill the bull. Some accounts note that some people would spread sweet-smelling incense around the procession. Again, if you stick around for the after talk, there's another little caveat there. But the whole imagery in Rome of the bull um, being slaughtered and for Caesar, this is actually a resurrection motif. Uh, it's, it's directly pointing to Caesar, like the deification process of Caesar. Conversely, though, with Jesus, the procession began. But instead of a bull... The would-be king and God became the sacrifice. But he could not carry the instrument of death and be the sacrifice. And so they stopped Simon and gave him the cross. Next one, please. Sweet. it's a lot of words on there, sorry. For Caesar, uh, which one are we at? There we go. For Caesar... Uh, The procession then moved to the highest hill in Rome, the Capitoline Hill, parenthetically there, right? The head hill. On this hill is the Capitoline Temple. Jesus, Jerusalem. Jesus was led up to Golgotha. In Aramaic, Golgotha is not precisely Skull Hill. That's Calvary. To split hairs, Golgotha actually means head hill just like the Roman Capitoline. Next slide, please. Back to Caesar. The candidate then stood before the temple altar and was offered by the slave a bowl of wine mixed with myrrh. He took it as if to accept it and then gave it back. The slave also refuses, and then the wine was poured out either onto the altar or onto the bowl. Right after the wine was poured, the bull was killed. Let's go to Jesus. Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh. It says it was there for pain, and he refused it. Right after that refusal, it is written, and they crucified him. Next slide, please. The Caesar to be gathered his second in command on his right hand and his third in command on his left. 
Then they ascended to the throne of the Capitolium. Think about some of the disciples arguing what side they're going to be on, or someone's mom asking if their kids could be on the left and right of Jesus when he ascends to his throne. In Jesus' story, next came the account of those being crucified on his right and left. The word used there is lestes, which would be uh, terrorist, insurrectionist. I read a little note in some of my research that said, potentially, these were Barabbas' um, counterparts who should have been up on that cross for his part participation uh, in an uprising. And here is Jesus next to these two ascending to his throne. Next slide, please. The crowd acclaimed the inaugurated emperor, and for the divine seal of approval, the gods would send signs such as a flock of doves or a solar eclipse. I'm a history buff. In fact, I, I love the Mayan culture of all the ones that I have spent time studying and interesting in this culture as well in the Maya. Anytime there was a transition, a handing over of power, they would wait to celebrate it to when there was something happen in the stars so that the co common folk would think that uh, these things were being endorsed by the gods. Jesus was again acclaimed, mocked, and a divine sign confirmed God's presence. The temple curtain ripped in two. In another account, the whole sky became darkened, tombs burst open, and the dead walked about. Let's have fun talking about that, because that's crazy. <laughs> Finally, the Roman guard, who undoubtedly pledged allegiance to Caesar, who is the other son of God, was converted and acclaimed this man as the son of God. I don't want to steal what, uh, what Brian can unpack there. But you had Peter earlier on in the text confessing, you are the Christ. And here you have, after seeing all of this, right? And I'll even go out on a limb and say, I believe that might, might be the first martyr of the church because by professing out loud, that truly this is the Son of God, that's recorded, people heard it, that would be blasphemy in Rome because Caesar is the Son of God. The first century listener, as Mark is presenting this, um, I don't think Mark wants anybody to somehow, if you've gotten this far in the text and not been able to answer who is this man, it seems like this section... Mark is telling us. You still get to decide for yourself. You get to decide with the crowds. You get to decide with the, the Roman guard. We still get to decide for ourselves. But I do really think Mark is punching us in the gosh darn faces <laughs> of who this guy is, right? That this is the inauguration. Can you go to the next slide, please? I think you guys know Shane Claiborne's a kind of hero of mine. And I love this quote. The cross is the culmination of all the empire had to offer, where all the wrath of the world was poured out onto God. I'm going to pause for a second because I know so many of us grew up with a narrative that said that we deserved wrath. And that God put that wrath onto Jesus. Again, if you want to stick around afterwards, I'd love to unpack that with you. But the cross is the culmination of all the empire had to offer, where all the wrath of the world was poured out onto God. We chose it. We defined good and evil. It is the fruit of our process. And it is on the cross that we can see the ultimate power standoff. 
On the cross, we see what love looks like when it stares evil in the face. We can hear what the lover from Nazareth has to say about evildoers and torturers. Father, forgive them, for they know they do not know what they are doing. Again, as I said in the beginning, my hypothesis is that it is the mind of Christ alone that can free us from that former way of thinking of enemy. Father, forgive them. They're still thinking in this left, right, black, white, either or, us, them, good, bad. Forgive them, Father. They're not there yet. So, in this current age, back to Jewish eschatology, I do believe that Mark is showing us that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the one that we have been waiting for to usher in a new way of thinking, a new participation in how to do life. And because of it, remember this from the gospel, Jesus, especially in the gospel of John, Jesus reminds us and his disciples, it's better for him to leave so that we have his spirit so that we have access to his spirit, to continue what he was doing. He even makes a bold statement there in John that we would go on to do even greater things. But for today, a reminder, we have access to the spirit, to ruach, to the breath, the life force of God. And we are invited to see the world through the lens of the Christ, to approach each situation non-judgmentally, to challenge our definitions of us and them good and evil, friend and enemy. We are invited to participate in the restoration of all things. We are invited, like in that original blessing, to be one with God. I didn't include this, but for those of you that that might be like, what? Remember Jesus' prayer, Father, may they be one as I am in you and you are in me. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. The divine has always been inviting us to share in the unity of the dance. So, next slide, please. Oh, you didn't get to that. Sorry. Uh, next one. Thank you. This is it. Wrapping up. So, my challenge to you guys. I used to call that homework. My challenge to you guys. <laughs> Can you imagine taking a class where that was your homework? Can you imagine having to grade that? Never mind. Uh, take time this week to observe your own definitions of good and evil. How quickly do you judge a situation or a person based on your biased definitions? How quick are you to uh, say a situation is good or bad? I was talking with Kathy White earlier this morning, and she was just asking me how I'm doing, and I was like... I. In trying to do this, like, I don't know how to really answer necessarily anymore. So like, even, even those things that we call good, friends, I would just challenge you to suspend judgment. It just is. It's just a part of how it goes. The desire to judge good and evil, Genesis 3, is the reason we're in the condition we're in. Number two, make these observations without judging yourself. Guilt and sh These are the definitions I would... Can you have compassion on yourself? Hey, these are the definitions I was handed. These are the definitions I grew up with. Okay, spirit, it's going to take some time. These are neuropathways, friends, right? It's going to take some time to hand those over. But it starts with observing them and accepting it. Lastly, when you notice your faulty definitions, these fallacies running in your mind... Take a moment to acknowledge them and ask the Spirit to continue transforming you into the likeness of the Christ. Practically speaking, pause. Pause. Place your attention on your breath for two or three breaths. Sit there before you react and ask the Spirit to guide you. What I'm not saying is that the Spirit's going to pop up and be like, doo, 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 let's go, right? <laughs> it would be really cool. I'm also not saying that like you're going to hear a voice or you're... those things. I mean, maybe, 
but it's what we're asked to do. And it's what we're told the Spirit is there for. So pause when you make those observations. Pause before you react based off those faulty definitions and invite the Spirit into that process. Right? We are living in the age to come. I'm sorry, yeah, we're living in, in the current age. Right? This a- I, I'm messing that up. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> don't quote me, don't record this. We are living in that anticipatory age, right? The Christ has come. Uh, let's actually live like it. Yeah. All right, let me pray. I think that's where we're ending. Do I have another page? Nope, that's where we're ending. Let's pray. Creator God, maker of the universe, creator of the garden, author of shalom, lover of our hearts, you who call us beloved. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would wipe clean the horrible, nasty definitions that we've collected along the way. These constructs that allow me to see my brothers and sisters as anything other than that. God, help us to love our enemies, not because it's something that we're trying to do, but because you are transforming our definitions of that word. Help us not to get sucked into the us and them battles cultural wars of our time. Illuminate those areas in our life, God, where we have faulty definitions that influence horrible actions, horrible conclusions. May we learn to die and suffer an egoic death that we might live truly from our essence a place of belovedness as your children, as your peacemakers, as your representation here on earth. It's in the name of Jesus, the Christ, the light of all things that we pray. Amen.